to be brought to bear through the confession of these hymns. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to respond accordingly with attentiveness and obedience as your word is proclaimed and with joy and gratefulness as we recall the heaven and earth that you moved to accomplish our salvation. Lord, as we look at the record of redemption, so carefully orchestrated, so engineered in time, so perfectly fulfilled in all the pages of your word, I pray in the corners that we consider today that we would find the gems of your wisdom and your revelation that would quicken our understanding and that would increase our knowledge, that would further equip us for the task to glorify you, and that would proclaim the glories, the authority, the majesty, the dominion and power of Jesus Christ, not only to us, but through us to others, as we grow in the knowledge, the understanding, and the obedience, and the ability to proclaim your word. I pray today, as your word goes forth, that it would not return void, but it would accomplish that which you intended that you would be magnified in this service, that a suitable throne for Jesus Christ and His glory and Lordship would be upon the hearts and praises of your people, and that we would be equipped for the call beyond this place to proclaim the glories of Christ to all who would hear. Lord, be magnified in our midst, be glorified in our lives, and I pray that you would uh, just uh, draw our attention now to your scriptures, so that in the giving and the hearing of the word, we may have clarity and understanding. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> what a great gift and privilege the grace of the Lord has been magnified to us in granting us another moment to gather as His people, the saints redeemed by His blood. If you know Him today and consider His word, today we do so picking up in our Genesis series, opening chapter 42 and marking a chapter in Joseph's life marked by reunion with his brothers, ten of them at least, who have now taken refuge in Egypt because of the famine that is in the land. You'll recall in chapter 41 that these moments were preceded by seven years of Joseph's rule, the Lord being with him and the Spirit of God evident through him, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, and God or the Pharaoh recognizing God in this man then has placed him in a position of prominence and authority and stewardship in the land. God is using all these details in such manifold, extraordinary ways that it's just a gripping story. I don't know if it's your favorite in the scriptures. It's certainly one of mine. When you listen to the Bible, especially the Old Testament, how can you not but be drawn into those you know, chapters in Genesis 37 all the way to the end, 50, as you hear the narrative of Joseph's life unfold with such extraordinary detail? So let's consider some of that narrative today in Genesis 42. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? The title of this morning's message is Down to Egypt, and the aim of today's sermon is to feature the will of God advanced through the affairs of men. So think about that, the will of God through the circumstances of Joseph's life and his brothers as we read the Word today. Here is the Holy Word of God, Genesis 42, 1 through 20. Now Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw 
his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. They said, we are your servants. We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this shall you be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your, your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days, 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, Say your words, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Another journey down to Egypt. At least 20 years have passed, so if you do the math, Joseph, how old was Joseph, kids, when he received his dreams of sheaves and sun, moon, and stars? You guys remember how old he was? 17 is correct. So we do the math, 17, and then at age 30, it says in the text, he ascended to rule, so he assumed the throne at age 30. And then there's been seven years of plenty. So you add those numbers together and we find 37 minus 17. And if my math is correct, Joseph has been away from his family for 20 years. Two decades have passed since Joseph and his family parted ways under horrific circumstances involving, as you recall, human trafficking, slavery, deception, jealousy, and so forth. Remember the pit, the robe, the blood, the scheme the sale, the shekels of silver, and the chains on neck and ankles as Joseph then is uh, drugged to Egypt against his will under these conditions to his fate, slavery, Potiphar's house in a foreign land. During this time, Joseph has thrived, though, in spite of everything. An incredible story of ascending to rule. That major theme of Joseph's life comes to mind again, messianic ascension. He has risen to second in command of Egypt, and we find in the purposes of God that his command in Egypt is for the calling of salvation. He will be the savior of the known world from famine, and he will save in particular the covenant family from the ravages of this situation. He has been appointed for just this, such a time as this. He has learned a new language, he has, assumed in a, uh, or he has assumed much of the trappings, if you will, of Egyptian royalty. He has been shaven, we see. He's got those robes. I mean, he is entirely, as presented on the outside, a different man. He's married an Egyptian lady, uh, Asenath, the daughter of the priestess, Potipharah, and so forth. He's had a couple of kids. He has served in Pharaoh's court now for seven plus years, and he is responsible 
in the wisdom of God applied through his ministry there for stewardship policies that are the last hope for feeding the known world during a horrible famine, no doubt here just on the front end, but many years to come. His administration will be absolutely necessary for the salvation from starvation of all the world. It is no surprise then when his brothers reunite with him after all these years, they have no idea who Joseph is. On the other hand, Joseph immediately recognizes his family. And he uses his position, and, uh, his position both of knowledge and political power, strategically to advance the purposes of God through the covenant family. The record of this first extraordinary family reunion in our text today is really profound in its scope of meaning. It's profound in what it represents and the hope it holds out for the patriarchal lineage at the time. The legacy of Jacob is in question and it is in crisis given the situation that it faces. But uh, not just at the time, for, but for even the reader today, there are so many possible applications. Even the reader can draw from this uh, many things, applications, we'll touch on a few of them today, to encourage our souls in, in our calling under conditions of crisis or otherwise. The text of Genesis 42 presents big picture redemptive themes, theological truths that become more clear through the rest of Scripture, but also very practical and personal applications. Let me just give you a few examples. A family reading this passage today might be reminded from this text why believers pray before their meals. Do you notice the posture of Joseph's brothers as they approach the sovereign source of food? They bow low before the earth, knowing that their lives depend on the provision, the storehouses of Joseph. So if it's customary in your home as it is in ours to pray before meals, what a good reminder that food spread before us came from a sovereign source. It was granted to us by God's grace and mercy. So just as Joseph's brothers bowed low before that source of provision, so it is customary and I think biblical and a good application for us to bow in thankfulness and submission to our God who supplies the bread on our table. If it wasn't for him, we would be condemned to hell due to the famine in our soul and the famine in real life, that's what we deserved in the curse. The land would not yield its fruit, but God has yielded so much fruitful, so many fruitful meals for us. And for this, we ought to be grateful for him as our great provider, the grand steward, even over Joseph, over everyone, over all of history and all the earth. A magistrate, furthermore, sets a family application, simply praying and thanking God for his provision. A magistrate may look at the example of Joseph. This would be somebody in political power, a ruler, a sheriff, a local city, congressman, councilman, or local city councilman, or a state or national congressman, a president, an administration. They might look to the example of Joseph who did not arise or who did not abuse his position for personal vengeance, to exercise tyranny, or to use leverage to his or his arbitrary constituents' advantage. But instead, he exercised restraint, fearing God despite prior grievances. Think about it. Um, this story reads, the story of Joseph, like a classic revenge tale. Back in the day when I was more of a fiction reader, one of my favorites was The Count of Monte Cristo. And Maybe you've seen a movie or read that book. And there it's a classic revenge tale, and it holds your attention 
because there's something in us, it's kind of the flesh mixed with a desire for justice that loves the idea of somebody being so horrifically abused and so maligned and so unfairly treated. Once he, against all odds, reaches a point, a place of position and power, maybe unbeknownst to his former abusers, it's like, oh yeah, now it's my turn and you are gonna get what's coming to you. And so it's so satisfying for our flesh to take vengeance in our own hands, even in fantasy or in a, in a novel form. Joseph was perfectly positioned in this story to take advantage. He could do whatever he wanted to, to bring what was coming to these brothers upon them. But what? He feared God. And he recognized that it was not in his authority to do so, but God would have vengeance. And instead, he very carefully calibrated his uh, his interaction with his brothers for the purposes of stewarding their heart towards the Lord and repentance rather than by executing his own vengeance on his brothers for the great abuse they inflicted upon him. Uh, powerful applications for us today. A father or husband, furthermore, might be instructed by this journey of the brothers to Egypt and the great lengths that God calls us to provide for our own families. And why do you stand there looking at one another? Why don't you do something about it, Joseph says. And so he sends them on their way. A theologian, furthermore, and finally by way of introduction, might be inspired by this text to recognize key features of redemptive history featured here, especially wilderness provision through the anointed servant of Yahweh. In the wilderness of famine, the anointed servant of Yahweh is uh, granting, he's providing the means of survival, the necessary sustenance in times of crisis. This will be a picture that will occur again under Moses, God's anointed servant, obedient to him, leading the people, this time out of Egypt. They have to do so in faith. Faith that God, in the wilderness, in the famine of their wanderings, if you will, will provide for them abundant provision in spite of a 40-year journey. The children of Jacob and Israel as they were at that time, 400 years later, would be called to walk away from Egypt in faith that God would supernaturally supply their daily bread. And yes, he did so. Kids, what was the daily bread that God gave the children of Israel in the wilderness? What was that called? Do you remember? Manna. That's right. So just through the ministry of Moses, the supernatural activity of the Lord, he provided manna in the wilderness. So through Joseph's godly wisdom, and supernatural revelation, God was providing manna, if you will, at this time as well. And this was a picture. These moments are only reinforced in their typological significance through the course of Scripture. We consider the privation, that means the starvation or the famine, accompanying the fall and the banishment of man from Eden. So you think of the big picture of the Scriptures. As God excommunicates Adam and Eve from the garden, banishes them from the provision, and the overflowing blessings of his presence. He tells them that the earth will not easily yield its increase. One of the marks of the, of the fall is that our way will be attended by hardship with respect to our daily bread, providing for our needs, and the basic sustenance is not a guarantee because of the fall. This is a picture of our own souls, dead in our trespasses and sins. Our souls have starved and are dead due to lack of the bread of life. All these pictures, though, point forward to a Jacob, if you will, or a Joseph or a Moses to come. They point forward to Jesus Christ, who proclaims to the spiritually starved in the famine of our own sins, 
that, are, that we, and we in our sojourning wanderings, aimless and lost and dead and our trespasses without hope in this world without the Lord, when he rescues and saves us, what do we confess? We confess what he told us in his ministry. Jesus Christ is our bread of life. Ultimately, Jesus is the bread of life. And so as the bread of life provided provisionally in this story was the rescue and salvation of the people at the, God's people at the time. So Jesus Christ provides for us in our salvation bread unto eternal life. So that's just a little overview of some of the big picture and practical applications of Genesis 42. Let's look a little bit closer at the structure of our text today and see what else we might learn. Here's a heading. The initial reunion of Jacob's sons in context. So let's consider this reunion in context of crisis, verses 1 through 5. In the context of fulfillment of prophecy, verses 6 through 9. And thirdly, the context of confrontation and trial, 9 through 20. So crisis, fulfillment, and confrontation. First of all, Genesis 42, 1 through 5. Consider the crisis. Well, let's back up to 57, 41, 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the, the famine was severe over all the earth. And we find this famine has touched Canaan as well as 42.1 opens with this a picture of Jacob's household. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So the 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among those who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So kids, what is the big crisis? What is the bad thing that's happened that is the backdrop of this story? What would you say? What has gone wrong in the land? The, the famine, that is correct. So famine is the crisis. But notice how God uses this crisis in many ways. First of all, let me just give one note as to the uh, language here. It's kind of an idiom or a figure of speech. Why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I've heard this grain for sale in Egypt, jo Joseph says. Uh, go, and go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So what does Jacob mean? Well, why are you standing around? Don't just stand there. Do something. Why do you stand there looking at one another? You know, what, have we have to, what do we have to lose? If you die on the, we'll either die here or we'll die on the way. So let's get busy about what, or let's pursue a course of action that might lead to God's grace and provision under these circumstances. We, our lives are very threatened. Now for things to get this bad, you got to imagine the situation. Likely livestock have died. Likely great herds of the flock have been slaughtered for food. And they've worked their way and still no rain. And still the sun beats hard upon them. And still people are crying out and looking and foraging. And pretty soon all the grass is, is gone. The last sprout has been nibbled down to the dirt by the goats and so forth. And so here we are hanging by a thread. Perhaps even some of their servants have died as this small band with barely enough strength, we imagine, to travel at all, finally, at wit's end, is going to head to Egypt. One last shot to save us from this hardship. This famine has stirred Jacob to an assertive leadership role. 
It's compelled mandatory headship or leadership. The famine compels him to take his patriarchal prerogative and to send his sons on a mission. God has done this before in Jacob's life. Jacob is not the sterling example of patriarchal leadership. There's many problems in his character that are revealed over time. But God has been faithful to use hardships to shape Jacob and to bring him to repentance so that he might follow his will. In Genesis 31, after years and years suffering under Laban's tyrannical terms of employment, Jacob saw in verse 2 that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So after a long period of dysfunction and hardship in Jacob's life, strife within his marriages and among his sons, things are about to change as God put, turns up the pressure, brings up the heat of trial as we studied last week. Jacob sent, verse 4, and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock uh, was, and he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as before. And then he gives them some instructions. This is what we're going to do. Um, he's going to take the animals that God has sovereignly given him, and he's going to follow the Lord, and he's going to return to Bethel, the place of God's promise, and he's going to leave this land. Jacob, in this instance, is spurred to action and obedience before the Lord under the conditions of hardship. And so once again, this uh, Jacob, the patriarch, rises up and brings a word of correction and direction to his sons. Quit standing around, take decisive action, head to Egypt. In our men's group study, we're going through a book called It's Good to Be a Man. And in chapter 2, in dealing with the calling of masculinity in biblical terms, there is a three-word phrase, what is dominion? And this is the book's definition. It's productive, representative, rulership. That's a great phrase, productive, representative, rulership. Sometimes God uses times of crisis to move us as men who have responsibilities to lead our families, lead churches, and lead societies. And as much as He has called us through our sphere of influence to represent Him, He's called us to productive, representative rulership. This was beautifully pictured in the obedience of Joseph. And God used the crisis to feature His rule productively in a representative way through that godly man. And God also used this crisis to direct Jacob to take a more decisive role accordingly. If Jacob hadn't done this, I mean, we shouldn't minimize his instructions. The family would not have been saved. The line of Christ would die by famine, and Jesus would not have come according to the promises. God used this crisis, however, to spur Jacob to action. The once passive leader now takes authority and directs his sons towards the right thing to do, and though he struggles yet with fear, sends them on their way. Now, this present crisis... It's not totally unprecedented. Uh, Jacob has a history in his family of dealing with famine. And no doubt he was reminded in this time of the experience of his grandfather, Abraham. You guys remember this? Genesis 12.10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went where? Same place that Jacob sent his sons. Down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When they were about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. We know the rest of the story. Um, Abraham, af afraid for his own life, comes up with this scheme to pass off his wife as his sister. She ends up in Pharaoh's household after all, until God confronts Pharaoh in a dream, and Pharaoh changes his 
course of action, returns the wife back, Sarai back to Abram, along with a bunch of presents and gifts, sends him on his way. The occasion of famine sometimes brings out these areas of both positive and negative. Crises can show the condition of our souls to lead us to a position of repentance. The occasion of famine, social upheaval, disruptions, events of this sort are instruments often in God's providential hand. They reveal areas where we trust ourselves rather than the Lord and where our character betrays a weakness in our faith. They chastise His people, that is, they bring corrective rebuke to conform them more to the image of Christ, to remind them of their dependence on Him. They advance His will in other ways by organizing the circumstances, uh, things that we could never engineer, even if we knew what the goal was, God does sovereignly in times like this. We know through this extraordinary scope that uh, it is not unprecedented that God would use famine for His glory, but nevertheless, it does present a trial. So the people of God are once again, like Abraham two generations before, seeking refuge and resources in Egypt due to this present crisis. Now, in this past crisis, it's interesting to see similarities in Abraham and Jacob's uh, souls. They both were afraid of the safety of their family members in some way on account of this journey to Egypt. Abraham feared for himself, and it was decided that, or it was discovered, and when it was discovered that Sarai was his wife, he feared that um, they would kill him, Pharaoh would kill him, and take Sarai as his own. Jacob likewise feared for the well-being of who? His last remaining son, the beloved wife, Rachel. Benjamin, so far as he knew, Benjamin, the youngest of his, of his departed and beloved bride, could not bear to send them into harm's way or risk uh, him uh, and all of that might attend the journey to go to Egypt. But here's the bigger picture that we have the advantage of seeing. Little did Abraham know that he would receive the blessings of Pharaoh, gifts, and leave that place, one of the richest men in the region that he would then go to Canaan. And little did Jacob realize that all these events would actually serve to reunite him with his lost son. He, would, he feared that he would lose another child, but God's purposes, God's purposes were to bring his lost son Joseph back to the family, to reunite this family. God is restoring what was lost while Jacob and Abraham both feared that they would lose family members. So what's an, a great application for us given this? Well, which, of, which is more likely to dominate our thoughts? Ask yourself this question. Memories or situations triggering fear or memories or situations triggering faith? So Jacob could look back, he could think about the testimony of Abraham, and he could think to himself, you know, Abraham, he understood the danger of sojourning in Egypt, and he took precautions, so I think I will do the same. This is a fearful thing to travel into a foreign land, it leaves you vulnerable and, su and, and subject to all kinds of possible situations. So that memory maybe, have, maybe had triggered fear for Joseph, thus he held Benjamin back from traveling. But notice, God, brought, God sovereignly intervened. He brought a dream to Pharaoh, and he not only gave Sarai back to Abram, but uh, filled up his coffers with riches, 
and his family with servants and sent him on the way. So there's two uh, in the lineage or in the legacy of Abraham, there's two sources you could draw from. One was memories that would trigger fear and concern, and the other was faith. So the, there is a message for us in crisis. In crisis, it is very easy for us to be triggered and our fear uh, and so forth to kick in. However, let us learn from the pages of Scripture the testimony of God's sovereign provision in times like these, and let us ask Him to grow our faith. You know, Jacob could have thought, my grandmother was almost abducted under, in situations like this. Or he could think, even, or he could remember, even though my grandfather was in a similar situation, God, uh, held, God fulfilled his covenant and kept him safe all the way there and all the way back. Finally, under crises, they provide not only an opportunity to grow in our character, to exercise headship, and we see the nature of the crisis, past and present. It also provides a clarifying intensity. This was a crisis so great and widespread that the attention of Jacob and his sons, yea, all the peoples, became keenly fixed on the only true source of provision and salvation. Notice again in Genesis 41, God has organized and used this crisis in an incredible way. 56, so the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, the crisis that the Pharaoh recognized seven years prior to was such that he deferred to a man in whom he saw the spirit of Yahweh. The Pharaoh saw the spirit of God in Jacob and knew that the challenge was so great that he would have to trust the Lord through his servant to organize the affairs, and thankfully he did. Now more people are recognizing the same thing. In this crisis, the intensity is so great that people all over the earth, their attention is focused on the only source of provision. No one's dancing around Baal anymore and doing some kind of rain dance and cutting themselves for hopes that the fields would grow. All of the Asherah worshipers have laid down their tools of incense and their instruments of worship, and they've uh, turned their hopes toward Egypt. Nobody is crying out to the false gods anymore and because they've done it presumably over and over and over again, and the fields remain dusty and dry, and all the creeks are running with zero water at this time, just wind. And so what happens during this time of intense crisis? Well, the only true source... The only ultimate source of provision now is more obvious to the whole world. The word of God had proclaimed to and through Joseph, his anointed servant, that only by the wisdom of God, only by heeding the word of prophecy, would Egypt or anyone else be saved. My prayer is that God would use the occasion of present crises to focus the attention of people as well. That though the crisis might be intense that we face today, any number of things that people are concerned about, that it would have a clarifying uh, effect and that people would stop worshiping idols and would turn to the one source of true provision. That's what happened then. Let us pray that it happens again. So this initial union of Jacob's sons in context is marked by this crisis and God's use of it. Secondly, it's marked by prophetic fulfillment. Verse 6, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. 
Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. So first of all, under fulfillment, uh, Joseph immediately remembers the dreams that he had 20 years ago when he was 17. Back in chapter 37, just a quick reminder of these dreams and the imagery each one Joseph had a dream, verse 5, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And then, kids, what do the brother sheaves do in that dream? That's correct. They bow down to Joseph's sheaf. Notice the precise fulfillment of this dream. Joseph's brothers, ten of them now, are before him as he's ruling second in command with faces bowed low to the earth. An instant, dramatic, absolute, God-ordered, sovereign fulfillment of what came before. But this fulfillment was even more precise still. Do you remember? God had chosen the imagery of sheaves to represent this very thing. In other words, the dream anticipated that there would come a time not only that Joseph's brothers would bow, but they would bow uh, on account of lack of crops and then provision elsewhere. So Joseph's chief arose, he arises to rule, and he arises to rule as the one in charge of the storehouses of provision and the crops of the field. So why did Joseph immediately recognize it and his brothers did not? It was because of their relative attitude and value of the word of God. We've said this before, but these dreams were not just the imagination of a 17-year-old running wild in the night hour. They were the very word of God. They were divine special revelation to God's servant. They were a prophecy absolutely to be fulfilled. If you recognize that, you marked it, you memorized it, and you held that in your heart, then you could recognize in times of crisis that God is still in charge. Do you cling to the word of God? Do you dig deeply and prepare in the times of blessing for the times of hardship? If you love and cling to the scriptures, if you hide them in your heart that you may not sin against him, you'll find that same principle in your own life. In the time of crisis, you will recognize in spite of the hardship, the hand of God in spite of it all. But if you're the brothers and you have a lot to learn yet, you might feel discombobulated and confused and, you know, don't have any real sense of confidence yet, that would change, but it would take God's word again, revealed to them finally to do it. And so the message here is that this dream was precise and the word of God had real power. And for Joseph, that power is evident that he immediately recognizes the situation and is able to navigate it in a way that glorifies the Lord and actually does a great service, uh, stewarding the hearts, if you will, of his brothers. So as we consider the imagery of these dreams, we see this reference to crops in the field in that first dream. Bowing to Joseph's lifted sheath. Uh, the messianic ascension picture is in that dream as well as the circumstances, including his call to viziership or grand stewardship of Egypt, where he would establish a store of crops for which the whole world would bow before him in search of not just his brothers. And secondly, in his dreams, a second dream, we see another picture. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bowing down to me. And when he told it to his brothers, 
to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And what's the answer, kids? Yes, the answer is yes. But not only, but the answer goes even before, goes even beyond his family and his mother and his father. As we've read, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. We mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. Sun, moon, and stars in ancient times, and even like you think about the uh, encyclopedia page with all the flags of the earth, to this day, those ancient symbols of authority and the identity of people, groups, nations, and political, you know, social orders and authorities, they're represented often by sun, moon, stars. They're stars on their own flag, the American flag, for instance, each one representing a state, which is like a realm of jurisdictional authority. Well, in Joseph's picture, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as representative of authorities, including his brothers who might thought, have thought because they're older than him, they bear some superiority in the pecking order of their family, or his parents, who traditionally speaking certainly would be in charge of him. But, further than that, but more than that, the nations of the earth, in fact. So we find the sun, moon, and stars language precisely prophesying that Joseph would be exalted to a position where the whole world would come and bow before the Spirit of God in him, governing his affairs, or uh, organizing his, uh, the administration of his rule such that he was able to feed the known world. So Joseph immediately recognizes this as well, and we ask ourselves how. It's because he took seriously the Word of God. The fulfillment of that text is very obvious, not just in the persons involved, his family, but also in those specific pictures of sheaves of grain, as well as heavenly bodies representing authorities. So this fulfillment was taking place with respect to provision, with respect to lordship, and also his own family. And as Joseph sees this, he recognizes that this is indeed God's plan. Could Joseph have engineered this? Of course not. No one could have anticipated or engineered so high above our ability to conceive and to uh, produce uh, is the will of God. And Joseph's story teaches us this. You know, we come up with plans to accommodate and provide, and it's right as far as it's an exercise of wisdom to do so. But when it comes to organizing all the affairs of our lives in the universe, how foolish is it to assume that we, in the sum of our power, I don't care what, how much power somebody uh, imagines themselves to have as a great ruler of the kings of the world or what have you, it's foolish to assume that they have the ability to organize circumstances in such a way as to bring about the amazing will of God, addressing multiple things all at the same time. It's profound, it's powerful. The story of Joseph gives us a window into the providential genius of our sovereign God. It's amazing. God's plan and our awareness. So Joseph is aware of these things, but his brothers not so much. Verse 8, And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And we referenced a couple practical reasons why that might be the case. Joseph certainly doesn't look anything like he did before. Now with uh, speaking the language of Egypt, he's going through a translator as he communicates with his brothers. His royal robes, presumably, and so forth, his shaven appearance, he's added 20 years, and so forth. And so his brothers have no idea what's going on. And they're caught flat-footed. They're blindsided by this. They don't know how to uh, understand or interpret the situation except to respond in, in the immediate, you know, given uh, their, their kind of grasping uh, at straws to figure out what to do. Joseph is not caught flat-footed. He knows what's going on. 
Joseph saw his brothers, verse 7, and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? My Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. In verse 6, as Joseph was governor... And in this position to sell to all who had come of his storehouses, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. You know, there's much discussion in philosophical terms, and much of it is short-sighted, about the apparent conflict from our vantage point between the free will of God, God's will, and the so-called free will of man. Let me ask you a question as it relates to this. Did the brothers bow... Were they forced by God to bow before Joseph, or did they bow of their own will? The answer is yes. But then if you ask the question, did God in His sovereignty and in His will arrange such circumstances that caused the brothers to bow before? There's their uh, brother Joseph, and the answer is also yes. Isn't it amazing how God works? God works through means in this life to organize situations and circumstances to draw us unto Him if we are the called according to His purpose. And so we come to the Lord and we come to him freely in a sense. But he in his sovereignty has organized the circumstances in our lives that unbeknownst to us, he is drawing us. John chapter 6, Jesus tells us that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And that drawing that's indicated in the original language is an irresistible force. But it's not a force that locks chains on us and, you know... uh, and cracks a whip and says, go to the altar, go to the altar. Instead, it's a drawing force that involves God's patience and God's ingenuity, organizing innumerable circumstances to line up, to change our hearts, to, conform, to cause us to hate our sin, to turn from our old life, to place faith in the Lord, for our eyes to be opened, for a heart that was once rock hard, to be softened by the clay of His providence as He organizes situations in our lives so that we continue to see the futility of our sin and the sovereignty of our Lord and cry out in the end in our desperate, self-aware, a picture of right here, the famine of our souls, Lord Jesus, you alone are my Savior and my salvation. For some people, this path is a long and arduous journey. God leads us to the cross sometimes through a long sojourning to Egypt, as it were. He leads us through the consequences of our sins sometimes, which have horrible fallout. 20 years of the consequences of deception and this torn family and their father's anguish and so forth, and this weighing heavy on their hearts. The brothers finally, by the sovereignty of God, have been led to bow before his will and purposes, and things are about to change. It's a beautiful picture of God's plan, and even when we are unaware how he works in our lives as the good shepherd with his rod and staff to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death unto the streams of living water and the green pastures of salvation and beyond. And God was doing this at this time for the brothers of Joseph. Well, some of the means of his rod and staff included confrontation and trial. And this is our final point. And we see this in the kind of contentious demeanor and the harsh words, as the Bible puts it, towards the brothers that Joseph employs. So he says, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Verse 9, they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. 
Verse 12, he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. They said to him, and they said, We are your servants. We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man, in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Joseph, in responding to them in this way, maintaining for a time his secrecy and approaching them in this contentious or this harsh demeanor, there's a clear intention that he is served, or there is purpose in this. And as I said before, it is not self-serving. As the, uh, I, would, I would submit, as we uh, see more unfold, as we see the story unfold, we find this to be clear. Matthew Henry says it this way, quote, Joseph was hard upon his brothers, not from a spirit of revenge, but to bring them to repentance. God, he goes further, God in his providence sometimes seems harsh with those he loves and speaks roughly to those for whom he has great mercy in store. It was, very, it was a very encouraging word, he said to them, I fear God, as if he had said, you may be assured, I will do you no wrong, I dare not, for I know there is one higher than I, with those that fear God, we may expect fair dealing." But notice what Matthew Henry has drawn from the text. There's a purpose for Joseph's hard words initially for his brothers, not to get even, exact revenge, but to bring them to repentance. And he draws from this the principle, God in his providence sometimes seems harsh with those he loves. Have you felt the disciplining hand or the circumstantial call, you know, whatever God has called you to go through is harsh at times? I'm sure we all have. We must remember what we learn from this account of Joseph's life and his brothers. Sometimes the Lord himself speaks roughly to those for whom he has great mercy in store. So this is a test of intentions that Joseph has basically engineered in his response here. Many of our own trials are multidimensional as well. We might be going through various kinds of hardship, and it's easy to look at the surface and say this is a food problem and nothing more. You know, on the surface level, this is a food problem. This is a famine problem. We've got to solve the famine problem. And what is, you know, maybe missed by people is that there's much more going on underneath the surface. So God is using this famine problem, quote unquote, to do other things, to reveal the hearts of the brothers, to strengthen the faith of the patriarch, to inspire repentance among the lost, to bring them home, a family reunion for the purposes of salvation, through the covenant community of God, where a father walks to Egypt in faith, though elderly at the time, where brothers repent of their prior sins, their jealousy, and there is a great reunion and even a deference to the authority of one of the younger brothers accomplishing all this by the sovereign hand of God is all going to take place as a result of this difficulty a test of intentions, in order to reveal their hearts, uh, Joseph is asking them pointed strategic questions. This is sort of a, a vetting process, figure out whether they're slaves or not. I'm sorry, uh, spies or not. And this would be probably common in this, these times if you have foreign travelers coming in. Joseph, as an attentive magistrate full of the wisdom of God, no doubt had a vetting process. He wouldn't just let anyone come in and buy food without giving them a test of intentions. And so this would probably be expected, and the brothers were probably not surprised to be subject to this kind of cross-examination. But they surely thought, if we answer the question, and it becomes obvious to him that...
brothers here, then the story of you are spies would be far less likely. You know, it's not likely that a father would send 10 of his sons out as spies, is it? But this did not appear to convince Joseph as he continues along these lines. Joseph shrewdly uses this opportunity to, to shepherd, if you will, or to steward his brother's hearts unbeknownst to them. And it's kind of neat to see how just as God called Joseph as a steward of the great provisions of Egypt during the seven years of plenty, he also used him to steward or shepherd his brother's hearts. And so in this role, his questions serve the purpose of revealing what their intentions are and thus bringing them to a place of repentance. There's also a test of integrity in verses 13 through 17. This back and forth continues. They say, we are, you know, your servants, 12 brothers, sons of one man. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. So you see Joseph is actually disclosing to them his purpose to test them and their intentions and their integrity. And so he says, Joseph does, note these two references, by the life of Pharaoh, uh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes. And then later, 16, towards the end, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph has appealed in his rough language to the authority of Pharaoh. And how would that cause the brothers to feel? Oh, here's a officer of Pharaoh's court who's taking a vow upon the authority that the Pharaoh represents, holding our life in his hands based on whether or not he will grant us food and that doesn't trust who we are, who we disclose ourselves to be, and is going to lock us up until we can somehow prove we are not spies. So they must have been shaking with fear. However, Joseph continues, and he asks for Benjamin to be returned. Verse 18, On the third day Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain con confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now think of it, think of this. Joseph, in his, just humanly speaking, he did not know if his brother Benjamin was alive or not. And he didn't want to reveal his identity to his brothers just yet. So he's crafted this test by which he will be able to more clearly tell, go get your youngest brother you just said you had and bring him to me. If the brothers are lying, test of integrity, it will be immediately apparent because they'll say, uh, uh, you know, stammering, stuttering. Actually, that isn't really true. Uh, he died and then it will put them in a really hard place. But the second option was if Benjamin still remained alive, then they would go if they valued their lives, retrieve him and bring him back. What if the second option was true? Well, Joseph has sent them on a journey, if they did it willfully, that their hearts were in it, would represent repentance. Think about it. Whereas in their former sin, they sold uh, their brother into Joseph, into slavery. So think of Joseph and Benjamin, similar. They were favored sons of their father's beloved wife, their half-brothers. And in their former sin, they had sold Joseph into slavery to be carried to chains in Egypt. But now what would they do? According to the command of Joseph, they would go and they would accompany a favored son on that exact same path, assuring his safety, providing for him along the way, bringing food back for his own uh, salvation from famine and his family. 
knowing all the while that their lives depended on it. Every footstep of the brothers from Canaan back to Egypt with their brother was repentance, a 180 degree turn. Whereas they had sold his, you know, Joseph into slavery, be drugged there with chains clasped on his neck and ankles, this time they would take their other, his brother, Benjamin, all the way there, providing, protecting for him on the way, knowing their lives depended on it. This was a glorious picture of repentance. And I guarantee along that way, the Lord was working on their hearts the whole time as he softened them and strengthened their relationship with their brother. And they looked past the former jealousy and they realized that in this crisis, God was bringing clarity to his will and purposes. And as they begin in this sacrificial journey along the way to carry him there, to guard him, then they begin to see the error of their ways and that God is doing something to restore this family, not only to save them from starvation, but to reunite them according to their calling and purpose. This was a test of intentions. It was a test of integrity, a test of repentance, and it was also a test of faith. We marked that twice Joseph has appealed to the authority of Pharaoh in issuing these directives. He says, By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh, and by the life of Pharaoh you are surely spies. This is assuming this you know, expected role as a pagan ruler. But notice one of the most important phrases in the text. On the third day, after the brothers had been incarcerated in jail, you know, maybe the same jail he was in back in the day, he said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If there is any reassurance for the brothers to gain based on their interaction with this Egyptian ruler was that he feared the same God as their father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and they would soon find the God of Joseph was the ultimate higher appeal to which this officer made. Among the most important phrases in the text, following this oath of Pharaoh's name, Joseph references the infinitely greater authority. I fear God. If there's any reassurance to be gained from them communicating with him, Pharaoh's officer, it would be with respect to this statement of conviction and submission to the one true sovereign who governs the affairs of men and had made, an unbra- had made unbreakable promises to the children of Abraham. And this was the reason, by the way, that Joseph did not take revenge either, did not take matters into his own hands. It was why? Because he feared the Lord. So now the brothers had a choice. They could think about the harsh words and, which would trigger fear in their life and they could just be shaking in their boots or they could hear or they could listen to that confession and remember that this man fears the same God as their father and hopefully they would fear as well and their grandfather, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they can proceed in faith. So they went and their story is recorded in greater detail and we'll touch upon it in future weeks. But for now, remember the story of Joseph and all that it contains for us We've touched on a few applications, God's purpose in and through crisis. I'd just like to draw you back to one of the opening uh, observations. If we find ourselves in great time of need, remember that when we come to the throne of grace, we do so to Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Joseph represented hope for the known world in the food that was in his silos. But Jesus represents hope of eternal life with the food that is his body and blood. 
And so we have all the more reason to have faith. We don't serve under one, a leader, a king who merely fears God, uh, but we serve under the king of kings who is God and who came in the flesh to offer his flesh as the bread of life to save us from the ultimate crisis, which is eternal spiritual famine. So remember these pictures as we seek to draw application and be encouraged from the life of Joseph. Let us close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the many ways that you reveal yourself in Scripture, the beauty and power of your nature, character, and your purposes in and through history and this world are so incredible. Lord, I pray that they would move us to worship you, they would move us in faith, that we would trust you with our heart and soul and the future, with our day-to-day lives and with our eternal life. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us every reason in our own testimony and in your scriptures to trust you. Help us to do so and forgive us for our unbelief. Lord, for those times that we harbor resentment, that we walk in fear, that we fail to recognize your sovereign hand, we repent, Lord. We pray that in our time of difficulty or trial, that you would use the circumstances to soften our own hearts so that we can have a greater appreciation and understanding. And let us cling in these times to the word of God, which will allow us the ability to see and the ability to walk through whatever you have ordained for us. Lord, I pray that as we do so, that we would boldly, Uh, proclaim to others that there's hope in Christ alone and that people would see that the clarifying intensity of the trial of our day points to only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we, Lord, be found faithful, pointing to him whenever you call us home or when you return. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.